I Read Comics, Episode 10. Yes, it's another comics podcast, and the big difference is, I'm doing it, and I'm a girl. That's right, a girl that reads comics. My name is Lena Taylor, and I read comics. Ah, another show, another day, another donut. Thanks for listening. And I want to first off say thank you everybody who sent me email. I've been getting a ton of email and comments on the blog, which is at ireadcomics.blogspot.com. And I really appreciate it. It's great to know that people are listening and thinking about the stuff I'm talking about. I have a bunch of things that I want to talk about today. The first is a correction from the last show. See, this is what happens when you try to do something, when you want to talk about something, and you don't actually have your notes in front of you. I should have learned that a long time ago. I spent many years teaching. Never do anything without your notes. When I was talking about Molly Kiley, um, I mis- misstated something, and I um, just want to tell you the correct version of it now. Forget what I said before. This is the real version. Molly had art in the... Uh, zine that was called Boiled Angel, which was the Mike Diana publication. She had some drawings in there that um, were based on something else that she had done. It was published in Boiled Angel. It was the last issue before Mike Diana was actually brought to trial. Molly Kylie was not called for that trial. The trial that she was called for was for a different zine called Answer Me, which was published by Jim Goad, who, um, as I understand it, is a really scary kind of guy, and I don't think I ever want to meet him. But um, that was what she was called to trial for. It was because um, Canada has these kind of weird rules about what constitutes obscene stuff, and they confiscated some issues of that, and because she had art in it, um, and her art was for a two-page strip called I Was a Teenage Victim of Anal Date Rape, she had to come and testify. So that was what the story was about. Um, I'm going to put a link on the blog so that you guys can read a wonderful essay about Molly and her work by the fabulous Ginger Mayerson, who does all of the exquisite music for this show. And if you're at all interested in Molly, go read the essay. It's really, really good. I am going to do another show about Molly at some point in the future. Um, but I just wanted to make that correction. And in the other um, sort of newsy stuff... I talked about um, a zine comic, a self-published comic called Schadenfreude, about um, Byron, the mad, bad, dangerous guy. And the author, Carl Christian, was really happy with what I had to say. And I'm really glad that he liked my comments and that he thought that I, I got what he was trying to do. And the news there is that he says, there is more Byron to come. Um, he has posted some of the drawn pages on his journal, on his live journal. So I'm going to dig those up and put in a link to it. And he says three issues out of four have been written and um, he hopes to get them out before the end of the year. So that is great. I am really looking forward to seeing more of Byron. Very, very exciting. So I've got some new stuff and some old stuff to talk about. So let's take a musical break and listen to the wonderful music of the diva, Ginger Mayerson.
I spent 24 hours in New York this week, which basically meant that I was on a plane for five hours to get there, and then I got there, and uh, I went out and had dinner, and then I came back and went to sleep and went to the meeting I had to go to, and then I got back on a plane for six hours and flew back out here to California. Why am I telling you this? Um, the only good thing that came out of that trip, really, was that I got to spend the six-hour flight from JFK to Oakland reading the trade paperback of The Watchmen, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Um, I'm, you're, if you're listening to this, you're probably going to be astonished that I haven't read this, but I just missed it. You know, what can I say? It was the 80s. I was busy. I got it from the library, my wonderful, wonderful library, and it's... Uh, the edition with the different cover, it has the smiley face with the blood smear on it. And this was um, copyright 1987, nice flat trade paperback edition. And so I'm going to talk about it. And if you haven't read Watchmen, and probably I'm the only person in the United States who hasn't read it, who likes comic books. So there's going to be all kinds of spoilers. So I guess if you haven't read it, you probably shouldn't be listening to the rest of this. It was really, really good. Um, I, I know everybody talks about this as a turning point in comics, and you can clearly see why that is so. Everything about it is so far above what most comics are perceived as or what they are intended to be. Um, it, it's just this whole other idea. It, it's almost... It's almost not worth calling it a comic book. Um, you can see why people wanted to use something like graphic novel, because it is a graphic novel. It's a novel that you could read. Even if there weren't pictures in it, it would still make sense, and you could understand what was going on. Uh, but the graphics are really wonderful. And typical for Alan Moore's writing, it's very layered. There are many, many things going on in every panel and every page of the story. Um, there are some very subtle things, so you really have to look at the art to see the stuff in the background and how that works into what's going on with the characters. And then there are the more obvious types of layering, as when there's action going on in a scene and another character is reading a comic book and the text from the comic book appears um, as a caption on the same uh, page in the same placement as the word balloons for the people who are talking. And of course the juxtaposition has all kinds of meaning built into it. So um, that's kind of the core of this book is juxtaposition. It's when things are placed next to each other, what happens? What's the context? It's all about context. Um, what I, I found interesting, so I, I didn't really know anything about this before I started reading it, except that it was this classic thing that I had somehow missed out on because, you know, I was too busy running a record store and listening to The Cure and stuff in the mid-'80s. Um, it's about superheroes, but they're not superheroes. There's only uh, really one character in here, maybe two, that actually have any superpowers, and everybody else who is a uh, caped crusader is just doing it on their own strength. So it's not quite the superhero universe, although it is a caped crusader universe. It's clearly set in an alternate reality. Um, it's kind of the same as our reality, but with differences in technology and differences in politics. Um, somebody was asking me if I thought it was dated, because it was published 20 years ago, and it, it isn't really dated. Um, the I mean, it's not dated by, say, the fashions or what's happening. The one thing that kind of sticks out is, throughout the book, 
the Russians are presented as the major threat to the United States, and there's a, a complete un- underlying plot about how the Russians are invading Afghanistan, which is very timely, and then they invade Pakistan, and there's going to be a nuclear war, and, and that's part of the, the the theme, the motif that runs through this is the nuclear. Um, clock, right? So when it's five minutes to midnight, four minutes to midnight, midnight is when nuclear Armageddon is going to happen. That's how the government actually talks about it. But, you know, looking back from what we know now about what was happening in Russia and when the wall finally came down, you know, to think that the Russians could have invaded Afghanistan and then Pakistan and actually threatened the United States, you're like, wow, the Russians were having a tough time, you know, getting their vodka into bottles, that kind of invasion, totally beyond them at that time. You know, the poor Russians, you got to feel sorry for them. Everything was collapsing. They were living in a horrible place where nothing worked anymore and nobody believed anything said. I don't know that it's much better now, but um, in 1985, not really reality. But it's a parallel universe, so what does it matter? The The characters that are in here are really interesting. It's something, I guess you can see part of this as a direct outcome outgrowth of what Marvel was trying to do in the 60s and 70s, and then it later got passed along to DC, which was to make the superhero characters be flawed in some way, and to have difficult personal lives, and have that affect their jobs, um, their superheroing jobs. So, you know, Peter Parker is often um, held up as the first example of the, the troubled loner type of superhero where um, he's totally different when he's not being Spider-Man. He's got doubts and he has a crappy life and he never has a girlfriend and he's always having to take care of Aunt May and his boss doesn't like him. And, you know, he's just got a, a lot of things that affect him and it does affect his performance as Spider-Man sometimes because he's full of self-doubt and he, he sometimes does things that um, he probably wishes he hadn't done. And these characters are the logical conclusion of that, where they are deeply troubled in a lot of ways, and that affects how they act and how they act with each other, and what their paths are as superheroes. Some of them retire, some of them go on to try and use their identities for profits, and some of them embrace it, but in a an amoral way, and I, I mean that in different ways. So the two Characters who are at polar opposites are um, Dr. Manhattan, who is the one guy who does have superpowers because he got uh, transformed through a, a, a nuclear accident. And he's amoral in the sense that he's no longer human, so he's above human morals. To a certain extent, he, he does retain a bit of his humanity, but in general, he doesn't... He's not involved in humanity anymore, and he finds it very hard to relate to what people are doing. And concepts such as right and wrong and what's socially acceptable don't have a lot of meaning for him. On the other end of the spectrum is the comedian, who um, is the one character who has, from from the original group of um, caped crusaders, who stays with it, goes to work for the government, and becomes amoral in a different way in that he recognizes what is right and what is wrong, and he chooses to disregard it because it doesn't fit in with his worldview. He's probably the most, well, he's one of the most interesting characters in here because although you see him being brutal and doing really awful things and uh, there's hints that he's done a lot more awful things that we really don't know about, he is the clearest he has the clearest view of humanity. He says this about himself a couple times, and he's absolutely right. He can see people for what they really are. He sees society for what it really is. And, you know, he kind of has a choice 
which is to go along with it and laugh, hence his name, or he would probably have to kill himself because the knowledge of, of how bad humanity can be is just awful at times. So those guys are interesting, and then everybody else is kind of in between, leaning towards either either side of that continuum. Um, the I guess the character that people focus on, because he is the character, is Rorschach. And the one thing about him that I didn't like, I think he's a great character, he's very interesting. It's... Um, I was kind of looking around online and some people describe him as a, a right-wing vigilante, but he's not right-wing at all. He is not amoral. He has his very own strong moral code, but it's not right-wing or left-wing. It's more libertarian than anything else. There's a lot of reliance on the individual, um, and he feels that he's qualified to judge other people and then pass sentence on them as well. Um, so the one thing I really didn't like about him was the backstory that is given to him by Alan Moore, which is cliched, really cliched. You know, he has all of these issues because his mom was a part-time whore and he caught her once and she beat him up. So now he's got these problems. You know, I've heard that song so many times before. And given how deep and complex and surprising everything else is in this book, I, I think that could have been better. But, you know, a minor quibble. That's just me. Um, other things that were interesting about this book, which I totally didn't expect, was that there were a number of gay characters, which was neat. Um, too bad they weren't portrayed in a more positive light, but, you know, there you go. At least they were in there, and they weren't portrayed as awful simply because of their sexual orientation. So that was kind of cool. Um, like I said, not expecting to see it, and it's not something that gets dealt with much at all in comic books, or didn't used to be anyway. So it was kind of cool to see that in there, and, and I appreciated them taking the time to do that and to, to make that um, be part of the plot without superseding the plot. Um, very interesting to me also that uh, of the band of original superheroes, there were two gay men and one lesbian, and even though everybody knows that, it's the lesbian who gets drummed out of the group as the fall guy, so to speak, because that was a more acceptable path to take than having to out the, the other two um, gay guys. So, um, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, there, there are so many things about this that I could take the time to talk about. I, uh, again, looking around online, I found several sites that had lots of annotations for, for people who might need a little, um, guidance when reading through it. It's a really dense book. And in addition to the individual issues that were collected, the 12 issues in here, there is material in between each of them that takes the form of book excerpts, police reports, um, things from someone's scrapbook, all kinds of extra stuff that gets packed in here. And to read it all at one time is a little bit mind-numbing. I actually went back and read some of this, the in-between material, which is illuminating. It doesn't, uh, it's not required. So if you don't read it, it's okay. You'll still pretty much understand what's going on. But if you have a chance to read it, that's great. There are a lot of really wonderful graphic techniques in here that um, add so much to the story. Um, the repeated motifs, the way each individual issue is um, has its own images that run through it, and, and yet it works together with the whole um, thing as a package when you see it in the trade paperback form. I kind of can't imagine what it was like having to read this issue by issue when it came out because every issue is a cliffhanger. You have absolutely no idea what's going to happen when it comes to the end and you're dying to find out what the next part of it is going to be. Um, so if you haven't read it, I think you should read it. 
the oh one more tiny tiny little quibble i just have to say one of the characters in here her name is lori and you find out somewhere along the line that her mother actually named her laurel um nowhere in my universe is anybody who named laurel given the nickname lori those are two totally different names like mary and marie sorry doesn't work um the new paper sorry not trade paperback but the new hardback trade edition is coming out in october dc is putting it out uh it's watchmen the absolute edition because they're doing all these absolute editions right now which will be the original 12 issues plus the in-between material that was put in here plus a whole bunch of extra material that had been published in a version that's now out of print and supposedly some new stuff as well it's supposed to be giant and have just wonderful, wonderful stuff in it. So given that I got this from the library, I think I'm probably going to spring for the hardback edition. However, it costs $75. $75 fucking dollars, as a matter of fact. And I don't know anybody who wants to give DC that kind of money. So looked around the internet, found that Amazon has it for about $47. And, you know, Amazon gets enough of my money as it is, so I'm not inclined to give that $47 to them. So um, I give you all some homework, as, as I do on the other Trek show, which is find the place online that has the lowest price for this thing. It doesn't matter if it's pre-order or after it comes out. I don't have to have it on October 5th. I can wait. It's fine. It's not a limited edition. Um, DC had originally hinted that it might be a limited run, but it's not. They want to sell as many copies of this as possible. You know, one billion served would be really fine with them. So let's all look around online and find the cheapest place to buy the hardcover of Watchmen the Absolute Edition. If you guys can find it, post a comment or send me email at, at my email address, lena at troubledscience.com. And as soon as I get enough responses and a definitive lowest price, I will talk about it on the show. And hopefully it'll be an independent place that we feel good about supporting. And then we can all go and buy our copy of Watchmen Absolute Edition, not from DC and not from Amazon. want to know about, and I only know about this because it's over on the Comic Geek Speak message boards, which is a comic book online database, kind of like IMDb, um, and it's kind of like IMDb crossed with Wikipedia because it's all fan-based, and I spent some time today inputting a bunch of my comic books because, you know, contribute to the greater good and all that. It's a good thing to do, and uh, I, I just want to say that the very first thing I entered in there was Fantastic Four number 42. I'm so proud of myself for doing that. The reason I mention that is because I got out from my library uh, one of these Marvel trade paperback classics, which is Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. And it collects one, two, three, four, five, six different issues of Spider-Man that are all crossover with the Fantastic Four. The first one is actually from Ama- Amazing Spider-Man number one, which is really cool. And then the others are all from the 80s and 90s. So on the whole, I would say that this book... Um, 
aside from the first one, the the, the Amazing Spider-Man number one, the stories that it collects um, are pretty bad. And when I say bad, I mean really pretty not good. <laughs> if I could just make that a little bit clearer. And once again, I'm reminded of why I kind of lost interest in comics, in these types of comics after a while. Reading the first story is so cool because it's the first one. It's Amazing Spider-Man number one. Um, it's Lee and Ditko. And Ditko has such a unique style. It's just cool. And looking at it, I remembered, hey, Peter Parker used to wear glasses. I remember that. And the way Ditko draws glasses is that they're completely opaque when he has them on so you can't see his eyes at all. And um, the faces are just a little strange, and the thing looks like he's made out of dough. And I don't know. It's just it, it's classic in its way, and it's got uh, the great Stan Lee type of smart-ass dialogue in here. Um, so I thoroughly enjoyed that for what it was. And then, you know, I'm looking at these other ones, and they're just... For, for the time that they came out, they're just not that good. So take this one. This is um, Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, issue number 42. This came out in 1980. So five years before Watchmen, okay? Let's just bear that in mind. Only five years before Watchmen. And um, I'm not really familiar with the guys who were the artists on this. This is when Jim Shooter was editor-in-chief over at Marvel. So the writer is um, Bill Mantlo, and Mike Zeck is the artist. And it's fine. You know, the art is okay. Um, it's... The Fantastic Four and Spider-Man versus the Frightful Four, except that they have Magneto instead of Medusa at this point. And, uh, you know, there's some, like, kind of mistaken identity stuff and people masquerading as other people and blah, blah, blah. And it's, I guess the thing that bugs me about these sometimes is that it's the same thing that bugs me about um, a lot of episodes of TV shows, and I include Star Trek in that, but especially Next Generation, was that it's the reset button that gets pressed at the end. All this stuff happens, and then everything is exactly the same it was at the end. And one of the trends in comic books that I enjoy now is that that doesn't always happen. You know, there are story arcs where at the end of it, characters learn something, or a situation changes, or somebody's relationship changes, and I, I think that's important. But this was just a bunch of sound and fury signifying nothing. And it just wasn't even that good. You just wonder, like, okay, just to give you an example, at the end of this, so Fantastic Four and, and Spider-Man fight the, the frightful foursome here, and uh, the, tra- the Trapster, you know, is one of the guys. He's the only one left after they beat up the other three. And he's standing there, and the thing just kind of stares him down and says, uh, here's all the bad stuff that could happen to you if you if you lose. You know, you might get sent to the negative zone and some people just get beaten up. And Trapster just faints. And that's how they conquer him. He faints. Why does he faint? What is that about? He's a supervillain. He doesn't faint. There's no fainting. There's no fainting in superheroes. <sighs> and then the next one after that is another 1980 release, and this is a Marvel team-up issue. And the thing that I hate most about this is that Sue Storm has the ugliest hairdo I have ever seen. Um, I'm trying to remember if this was a popular hairstyle in the 80s. I didn't wear my hair like that. But she's got it up in this uh, sort of Gibson girlish uh, bun on her head with the little curls coming down and She's at one point wearing a, a strapless evening gown, which is extremely unflattering on her. Um, the plot for this was the introduction of a character named Karma, 
a Vietnamese woman who has the power to um, enter another person's body and take it over in a puppet-like fashion. So the plot is kind of interesting, and it's neat that they were at least trying to incorporate some diverse cultural stuff in there. So that was cool. Um, but the art is really, really bad. Um, let me just check to see who the artist was here, and I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> so this was one of the issues written by uh, Chris Claremont, and then the artists are Frank Miller and Bob um, Wyacek. I'm assuming that's how his name is pronounced. And I gotta say, I really don't like this art. I think uh, the characters are drawn in a really ugly way. They don't look real. They don't even look comic booky real. They just look ugly. Really, really ugly. I don't like looking at ugly superheroes. Um, so then following that, we have... Spider-Man and Mr. Fantastic is another Marvel team-up, and this is Ish 132, and uh, this was published in 1993, oh, sorry, 1983, and this was when the Fantastic Four had those other dorky costumes, the dark blue ones with the white gloves and everything, and um, this is kind of interesting because it's not a standard superhero plot, It um, it's Reed and, and Spider-Man uh, versus... Uh, What's this guy's name? Hold on a second. It's uh, Larry. Yes, Larry, who is the son of one of Reed Richards' friends. He became everyman, and he was bad. Then he went to a psychiatric institute. Now he's better, except he's not really better, and that's the plot. Um, So it's Reed Richards and Spider-Man versus uh, everyman, and it turns out, here's a spoiler, sorry if you were just not didn't want to hear about it. Um, it turns out that it, it's really a plot by Dr. Faustus to, uh, you know, conquer the Fantastic Four at last. Um, so it's interesting. The whole thing with Faustus is kind of weird. Um, and at the end, it turns out that he had hallucinated some really important plot points here. And then also it spreads over two issues. I want to say there's a huge continuity error in that the guy who's Larry's father, Larry being every man, the villain, is given a, a different name in from issue to issue. So somebody should have been on top of that, you know? That's kind of why you have editors and editors-in-chief. So, um, you know, Jim Shooter, you should have been paying attention to that. And then the last one is Untold Tales of Spider-Man 96. And this is just so dopey. I'm sorry for people who like this kind of stuff. I'm, I don't know. I just can't be um, objective about it. If it's supposed to be funny, it's really not very funny. So it's called A Night on the Town, and it's Spider-Man taking um, Sue Storm out for a date. And what happens? And Namor gets mixed up in this. and <laughs> It's just stupid. It's just a really stupid kind of story, and it's really not very funny either. Um, so, sorry, I just didn't like it. And if I had bought this as a comic book, I think I would have been kind of pissed off about it, because <laughs> it's just not good. Oh, and, and also, um, so this was... Um, uh, Kurt Busiak and Mike Aldred and then um, uh, Joe Sinat doing the inks and the usual staff doing it. And I gotta say, the characters are drawn kind of interesting, but the way their costumes are drawn, they are the ugliest damn things I have ever seen. Their shorts look like diapers. No kidding. They're really bad on the Fantastic Four. Really pretty stinking ugly. 
So um, on the whole, got to say, not very happy with this. But man, I'm really glad I got it from the library. That was a cool thing. And I'm going to continue to check out more of these things from the library so I don't have to pay money for it. In fact, I got a, a new library card today. I, I live in a place where there are, um, I'm right on the county line. So I got my library card from one county. And today I went and got my card from the other county library. So now I have the vast resources of these Central California, Northern California libraries at my disposal. So um, if anybody really liked any of those Fantastic Four Spider-Man stories that I was just talking about, let me know and please point out to me what the redeeming features are because I'd like to like them, but right now I just can't. things up. Um, I have a few short little things that I wanted to talk about. One is a recommendation for another podcast, which is called Comic Fight Club, done by a guy named Glenn O'Neill and um, his brothers and his wife and um, a mom and a grandma. And they all pitch in and talk about who would win in different pitched battles. And they're drawn from all different aspects of uh, fandom, I guess. So it's not really comics, but it'll be, you know, um, a Jedi warrior versus 10 Klingons or something like that. And it's very funny. Um, they really, <laughs> they sound like they're having a good time. I wish the audio quality was just a little bit better, but they do it very fast, which is good. So they probably go through um, 10 or 11 different pitched battles in the course of, you know, a 30 minute show. So it's pretty funny. It's well worth listening to. And Glenn was the guy who's nice enough to send me copies of the Star Trek X-Men comic books, which I'm, I'm just starting to read right now and we'll talk about on a future show. Coincidentally, the guy I talked about last time, Dave at Dave's Longbox reviewed one of those Star Trek comics in this week's edition of his blog, and um, he hated it, but that's okay. I'm not taking that to heart, because at first glance, I didn't hate it, but, you know, I haven't read it, and I don't think I'll hate it. Um, Probably there's a difference depending on whether you come to those comics from a Star Trek perspective or a comics perspective, and I have to say, not having read the comics that feature those X-Men, I am coming at it more from a Trek perspective, so maybe that'll make a difference. Apologies to all my listeners who are waiting for the gay porn. I'm sorry, there's no gay porn this week. Believe me, it's not for lack of trying. I just haven't come across anything that's really worth talking about. Um, I was going to mention before that Jim Goad, the guy who publishes Answer Me, for which Molly Kali was called blah, 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 has published something called Trucker Fags in Denial. And it sounds really interesting to me. I'm a little bit scared because it's Jim Goad and he's a scary guy. But I'm going to see if I can get my hands on that and talk about it if it's worth talking about. In the news department, I wanted to say that uh, on TV, the Cartoon Network, one of my most favorite channels in the entire world, is premiering a whole bunch of new stuff now that it's September, including the new season of Teen Titans, which starts on September 24th, which I'm very much looking forward to. I really like the cartoon Teen Titans. They have nothing to do with the regular Teen Titans in the comic books, but, you know, screw it. It's really fun. Um, the animation is good. It's weird Japanimation, so there you have to kind of know um, what to expect, but I, I think they're really good. And plus, they have that crazy 
crazy theme song by uh, those those Japanese girls, Puffy Amiyumi, the crazy Japanese pop singers, which is the redundant phrase that I always use for them. There are also new episodes of the other shows on there, which I really like, like Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, and even Camp Laszlo, which is a fairly annoying show, but I really like it now. Um, so I like Camp Laszlo, and I like Foster's because there's a character called Blue, which is short for Blue Regard, who is possibly the most annoying character I have ever come across in any television cartoon, and I love him for being so annoying. So I think that wraps it up for now. Uh, send me email, send me comments, and I will also say I- I'm going to start posting in the blog the new things that I get to talk about. And the one new thing that I got just today, as a matter of fact, was a copy of Brian Michael Bendis' Torso, which I had mentioned before. So I found it used, and I got it, and it looks really cool. So I am looking forward to reviewing it, and I will talk about it on a future so- show. <laughs> so until the next time we speak, read comics and watch cartoons on TV. Bye.